Good afternoon and welcome to our weekly class on uh, the parasha. So this week's parasha is very dramatic. Um, you know, we've, we've come from the parashas about the exodus, starting with the slavery and then the ten plagues, and finally the exodus from Egypt, the splitting of the sea, and uh, the giving of the Torah. And then the Torah took a little break. It told us, you know, the, the parasha of Mishpatim, uh, which was many many laws that were told to that were that were told to Moses for forty days and nights on Mount Sinai, and uh, there is a conversation about when exactly the laws of the temple of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, were communicated to Moses. There is a consensus that the laws were given to him also during those forty days and nights, um, and then after the Torah records the parsha of Mishpatim, Teruma, and Tetzaveh, which is all about um, the Truman and Tetzava, which are all about the Holy Temple, the Tabernacle. Then the Torah goes back to what was going on in the Jewish camp during those 40 days, during those 40, 40 days when Moses was on the mountain, was on Mount Sinai. And what happened during those 40 days was pretty bad. On day 39, uh, the Jewish people made a mistake and they miscalculated and uh, on, day number, on day number 39, they thought it was day number 40, and they started to get worried Moses had not returned. And uh, Satan got involved. He started to confuse them, and he showed them an image or a vision of Moses uh, in, in, a, in a coffin uh, being carried by angels. It was a pretty bad situation, and the Jewish people became very, very confused. And uh, to make a long story short, they, uh, they, they made this golden calf, and they served the golden calf, which was a very big mistake, obviously. Uh, the fallout was pretty bad. Uh, God wanted to destroy the Jewish people. And um, one of the most dramatic things that happened was that when Moses came down from the mountain holding the two tablets that had just been given to him by God, these two divine tablets that were crafted by God and engraved with the Ten Commandments, uh, when, when Moses saw the Jewish people serving the golden calf, he took the tablets and he broke them. He, you know, he, he admonished the people. They understood that they did something wrong. But so, several of them were punished. About 3,000 of them were punished for the grave sin of idol worship. And now, God, now but, but Moses knows that God really wants to destroy all of the people as a result of this terrible, uh, of the, of this terrible uh, sin. So he goes back. For another 40 days, he's in, in, on, on Mount Sinai pleading with God that he should forgive the Jewish people. Finally, 40 days later, God agrees, and he sends him back down to prepare two new tablets and to bring them back up to the mountain. And 40 days later, God engraved in these man-made tablets, God engraved the Ten Commandments, and that was the second set of tablets. Now, um, th th this story came to define the relationship between God and the Jewish people. You see, at the giving of the Torah, um, the relationship was like the perfect relationship. It was like the honeymoon type of relationship. Uh, the Jewish people entered a covenant with God. God was happy with them. They were happy with him. They were on the level of tzaddikim, perfectly righteous. They turned a new leaf. Forty days later, they sinned, and in, in a very egregious manner. And uh, God was very upset. But ultimately, God forgave them. So that proves that there's a concept called forgiveness. There's mistakes, and there's forgiveness, and we move on. 
And uh, from then on, that's pretty much how our relationship with God has been defined, that God is benevolent to forgive us for our mistakes, for our bad choices, etc. But there's another very fascinating, there are many fascinating things that come from this, uh, from the story of, um, of, the, of, the, of the golden calf, the story of the broken tablets, and specifically about the character of Moses. The real hero here was Moses. And as we're going to go through this class, we'll see that not only did Moses heroically defend the Jewish people, but Moses set down a standard, he taught us a standard of what not only leadership means, but what being part of a Jewish community really is all about. So uh, with that, we're going to start learning the Sicha, uh, the, the talk that, uh, that was chosen to be, uh, to be studied this week. Um, and before we get to the actual Sicha, I'd like to share with you one of the reasons why this Sicha is one of my all-time favorites. You know, everyone has, everyone has their classics that they always go back to. And some of you on this class, the, the idea that's expressed here in the Sicha might be familiar because I would say in a year of 52 classes, let's say, I probably referenced to the concept mentioned here at least 15 times. So I would say 10 to 15%, I do more than 52 classes a year. So about 10 to 15% of, of my classes, I always somehow smuggle in uh, the basic idea that's discussed in this Sicha. And I'll tell you why. Uh, not just because of the actual, you know, the, the, the content of the Sicha, uh, but I was introduced to the Sicha in a very interesting way. This, uh, this talk was delivered on Simcha's Torah. Simcha's Torah, you'd say, you know, why, why would the Rebbe talk about the, the broken tablets and Simcha's Torah? Well, we'll see soon why. Um, but let me just give you a little bit of background about this Farbring and this gathering that the Rebbe would hold on Simcha's Torah. Simcha's Torah is the final holiday of the holiday of Sukkot, which is the final holiday of the entire month of holidays of Tishrei, starting from Rosh Hashanah, and then Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and then finally Simcha Torah. Um, by the Rebbe, this was, very, this was a very supercharged month. Um, I would say that the population of Jews that were attending the Rebbe's synagogue during that month probably tripled or even quadrupled from throughout the year. There were many, many Hasidim that came from all around the world to be together with the Rebbe. Uh, FaceTime with the Rebbe, and I wouldn't say FaceTime, but at least time that the Rebbe spent with the crowd was enormous. I mean, the Rebbe came to all of the prayers and it was all in public and the Rebbe would uh, hold a fabrengen several times, many, many times during the month. So you can, and also there were many times that the Rebbe would, uh, let's say, give out honey cake, which is, uh, which is a custom that uh, the leader of the synagogue gives out honey cake to everyone before Yom Kippur. And if those that weren't there, Yom Kippur will be right before Simchas Torah, which is a very beautiful gesture of the blessing. Um, and, and it was just a very, very tremendous type of month. So you come to the final holiday. The final holiday is two days. The first day is called Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, and then comes Simchas Torah. So Shemini Atzeret by night, the first night of the holiday, is already a time where in Chabad we have the custom of dancing hakafot, of dancing with the Torah scroll. Now by the Rebbe, this was something that was an unbelievable event. Um, you're talking about thousands of people jammed into the synagogue. Um, and the joy was, was just tremendous and incredible. Um, and, you know, on Shemini Atzeret by night, the Hakafot would begin at 9 o'clock and would end maybe 11, 30, 12 o'clock, okay? So it went pretty late. But then the next day, it was also a busy day. There was prayers and a lot of things going on. The next day, that night was the night of Simchas Torah when all of the synagogues in New York City are celebrating Simchas Torah. And already from 1950, 1950, Simchas Torah 1950, the Rebbe uh, instituted a custom that 
all of the Hasidim that were attending his hakafot would first fan out throughout the neighborhood and even further, more beyond, they would go an hour, hour and a half away, all by foot. And they would attend hakafot in other synagogues to bring more of the joy and excitement of Simchas Torah. There are many synagogues where, you know, just the people don't have, they don't have that, uh, how do you say, that dance in their step. And um, so the, these groups of, of, of young men, older men, whatever it was, they would come, you know, 10, 15 of them would come into a synagogue and they would dance and they would sing and it would really bring a lot of excitement, passion and joy to those synagogues. And then they would walk back. All right. So that means that if Hakafot and all of the synagogues throughout the city start at 7 o'clock, 7.30 p.m., they're not done until 8.30, and then it could take up to an hour, hour and a half, even two and a half hours to walk back. They would walk very, very far. From Brooklyn, they would walk all the way to areas in Queens, um, all the way in Manhattan, all different boroughs. Um, and, it was, it was, and the Rebbe encouraged people to go as far as possible. Obviously, they wouldn't walk six, seven hours. That's impossible. But they would probably three hours was pretty much the cap on how far people would go. So... Uh, the Rebbe, obviously, if the Rebbe is sending them out to go and join Hakafot somewhere else, the Rebbe was going to wait for them to come back. So if people are doing Hakafot at least till 8 o'clock, 8.30 at night somewhere else, that's three hours away, you can't really start Hakafot until 1 o'clock in the morning. And that was the official schedule. Hakafot by the Rebbe on Simchas Torah night was at 1 o'clock in the morning. What happened before then? The Rebbe instituted another custom. At 9 o'clock at night, the Rebbe would, would uh, do the evening prayers about 7.30. And those evening prayers was the smallest crowd ever. It was only for very old men. Very old men were there. Those that just didn't have the, the, the ability to walk far. Anyone that was under the age of 65 didn't dare show his face in the synagogue during those prayers. Uh, you didn't dare be there. Because if you were there, that means you weren't doing what the Rebbe wanted. Um, an uncle of mine, he was like 21, 22. He had a broken leg, okay? So he couldn't walk. So he was the only boy chick. He was 21, 22. He was in the show. It was 1990, I think, 1990. And he said the Rebbe walked into the synagogue. There was maybe 30, 40 older men, in their, well in their 70s. And he said it was actually a very tremendous type of, you know, the Rebbe came in and the Rebbe was, you know, encouraging the singing and these men couldn't keep up. Um, so that, was, that itself was an experience. But at nine o'clock, the Rebbe would start off a break, nine o'clock at night of Simchas Torah. Now, most of the people were not yet back. So the Rebbe would have a Febregen for two to three hours in order to wait for all of them to come back. Now, I'd just like to give you a little bit of, uh, of an understanding of what this means. What, this Febregen, Simchas Torah night before Akafot, was from the, from the most unbelievable, exciting, and, 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 and beautiful Febregens. Um, the Rebbe was, was so expressive by these gatherings. And uh, at one point in the 1960s, there was a rabbi in New York, actually a Chabad rabbi, who wrote a letter to the Rebbe thanking him for sending the young boys to come to his synagogue to dance hakafot. And he knew it was like a two and a half, three hour walk from Crown Heights. And he writes to the Rebbe that, um, I appreciate the sacrifice that these boys made to walk two and a half, three hours to come to my synagogue and to walk back. So the Rebbe writes back to him, you got it wrong. Three hours walking was not their sacrifice. Their sacrifice was that they knew that there was a Fabrangan going on here in 770, which is from the best, the Rebbe even expressed himself. This is from the, from the most exciting types of Fabrangans. And they make the decision that despite the fact that the Rebbe is Fabrangan in 770, and it's one of the, one of the best ones possible, 
and it's a historic event, they chose to, to sacrifice their being there throughout the entire Fabregan to go very, very far, and it would take them time to come back. So let's get back to this Fabregan of, of 1986. I see Larry Lesser put up a, a picture of 770 over there. Yes, that's the, that's the front door of, of the synagogue, of, of the Rebbe's office, and, and downstairs is the, is the synagogue, etc. So in 1986, uh, the Rebbe gave this talk. And we'll see soon the connection to some pastor as we get into the talk. But I just want to tell you how I, how I heard about this. In like 2003, 2004, I was in New York for Simchas Torah. It was actually by the oil. Um, you know, adjacent to the oil, there's, there's like a whole cluster of homes which belongs to Chabad. And throughout the holidays, there's a lot going on over there. And uh, there was a man in his early 40s then, or maybe mid-30s, who in 1986 was, I would say, probably 20 years old, maybe less, 18, 19. And he said that one of the most unbelievable memories he has of Simchas Torah is when the Rebbe said this specific talk. And he described it to me. He said, you know, on the holidays, on the Shabbos, the Rebbe did not speak with a microphone. You're not allowed to speak with a microphone. And so if you, if you didn't really have a place really nearby, you would have a hard time hearing what the Rebbe was saying. So some of these young men, they would hide under the Rebbe's table. It was a very long bunch of tables that were there, but it's hard to describe exactly. But you're able to hide under the table. And uh, you're closer to the Rebbe, you're able to hear what's going on. And in fact, the Rebbe would many times acknowledge that they were there because when the Rebbe, during the breaks of the talks, the Rebbe would say, you know, respond l'chaim to all of the people that were there. Sometimes the Rebbe would pick up the tablecloth and respond l'chaim to all of the young men that were under the tables. The Rebbe really appreciated that, you know, they really wanted to hear what he had to say and there was no room in front of him, so they're under the table. Anyway, the point is, he says that when the Rebbe said this talk, the Rebbe was crying so bitterly and so, the Rebbe was so emotional that he saw the Rebbe's shoes soaked with his tears. The Rebbe was crying so profusely that his tears were falling all the way to his shoes. And he said, I saw this with my own eyes. I saw the Rebbe's tears on his shoes. And he said this, just hearing what the Rebbe was saying, he wasn't able to, hear, to see the Rebbe's face. Hearing it and seeing those tears had an indelible impression on him. And afterwards, all of the old timers, they all said they had never seen the Rebbe cry so bitterly in over 30 years. Uh, and, and you'll see as we're going to go through this, how emotionally charged this was and how, um, and how uh, tremendous the message here is. So let's go to, um, let's go to the handout on page number two, uh, this week's parsha. So the setting is Moses is on the mountain. The Jewish people are in the camp and they are serving the golden calf, unfortunately. When God finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the testimony. They were stone tablets written with God's finger. Moses turned around and began going down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hands. Oh, by the way, yeah, th th these verses are not one after another. God gave him the two tablets, and then God tells him, he says, oh, by the way, get out of here. Go down. Why? He says, because your people have sinned, and I'm going to destroy them. You know, God says, leave me alone so that I can destroy them. Moses wasn't uh, doing anything. Moses understood that it's up to him to save the day. So he started to, uh, to pray to God and, and begged him. He begged him to, uh, to, to, you know, to stay the decree that he shouldn't destroy the people. And God agreed, but God was furious. So Moses turned around and began going down the mountain with two tablets of testimony in his hand. There were tablets written on both sides with the writing visible on either side. 
The tablets were made by God and written with God's script engraved on the tablets. The Torah is very specific about telling us these details in order that we should appreciate and understand what Moses is holding in his hands, not just stones. These are stones that were made by God that were written with God's script. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, he was angered, and he threw down the tablets that were in his hand, shattering them at the foot of the mountain. He shattered them. What did he just shatter? The most precious gift ever given to man. The only time that God gave a physical object to a person. And here Moses goes and smashes it. All right, that's what happens in this week's parsha. Now let's jump all the way to the last parsha, the end of Deuteronomy. Moses dies. It's 40 years later. The Jewish people are about to enter the land of Israel. It was decreed that Moses not enter the land of Israel. And the Torah tells us about Moses, Moses' passing. Now we can already understand the connection to Simchas Torah, because on Simchas Torah, we complete the Torah. We conclude the reading of the Torah. So this is actually... Uh, the chapter that we read on Simchas Torah, where we're you know, dancing, rejoicing with the Torah, what do we do when we open the Torah? We talk about Moshe's death. Okay? After Moshe dies, the Torah records a eulogy for Moshe. This was God's eulogy for Moses. No, uh, these are the final verses, of, these are the final three verses of the entire Torah. No other prophet like Moses has arisen in Israel who knew God face to face. No one else could reproduce the signs and the miracles that God let him display in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his land, or any of the mighty acts or great sights that Moses displayed before the eyes of Israel. Beautiful eulogy, right? So let's see, well, what is this eulogy all about? So Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, the most important commentator on the Torah, goes through it line by line, stanza by stanza. Who knew God face to face? Moses, I'm on page three on the top. Moses felt familiar with God, speaking with him whenever he wished. Any of the mighty acts, what are the mighty acts that Moses, Moses did? This refers to receiving the tablets in his hands. So what are we praising Moses for? For receiving the tablets. The great sights. This refers to the miracles and wonders of the wilderness, right? The fact that the Jewish people were protected with clouds, the fact that they had manna, the fact that they had water, the fact that they were taken care of for 40 years. Who else can take a group of 3 million people? Or, you know, who else can take their family into the desert for 40 years and provide for them like that, right? And here Moses took care of millions of people. It was all in his merit. Before the eyes of all Israel. What is, and these are the final words of the eulogy, the final words of the Torah. And, that, and, and you know, when you talk about a eulogy, um, this is like you know, the climax. This is the, the climax of the entire thing. What is before the eyes of all Israel? This refers to the incident where he was stirred to smash the tablets before their eyes. As it is said, I shattered them before your eyes. God approved. The verse states, the first tablets which you shattered, asher shibarta, which you shattered, as the Talmud explains it, God said to Moses, yasher shibarta, well done for shattering. So what is the climax of the eulogy of Moses? He received the tablets in his hands. He did the great miracles in the desert. 
and he broke the tablets. And when he broke the tablets, God approved. And God said, Yashar Koyach. You know what Yashar Koyach means? Good job. No, really, this is the words of the Talmud. Taking the word Asher Shibarta and uh, Yashar Koyach. Okay. Um, so that this this is Rashi on these words. Um, okay, Larry, I see that you have several questions. I'll get back to the, back to those questions a little bit later on in the class. All righty. So verse. Okay, so let let's go on page three. The Torah concludes with the words before the eyes of all Israel. Rashi explains this refers to the incident where he was stirred to smash the tablets before their eyes. As it is said, I shattered them before your eyes, God approved. The verse states, the first tablet which, which you shattered, as the Talmud explains it, God said to Moses, well done for shattering them. This is very bizarre. In this section, the Torah sings Moshe's praise, praises. No other prophet like Moses has arisen in Israel who knew God face to face. No one else could reproduce the signs and miracles that God let him display in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his land or any of the mighty acts or great sights that Moses displayed before the eyes of all Israel. The notion that the words before the eyes of all Israel is a reference to the breaking of the tablets, he was stirred to smash the tablets before their eyes, seems to be the very opposite of the literal understanding of the text, which speaks of Moshe's virtues. It's true that God approved of his decision to break the tablets, and he does deserve credit for sensing God's will, but we still do not view the actual breaking of the tablets as a positive occurrence, right? That itself was a negative thing, but it was a negative thing in order to get something else done. God approved of doing it. Why does Rashi understand the verse as a reference to the breaking of the tablets? From the perspective of Torah's literal meaning, other commentators seem more on track. As they explain it, before the eyes of all Israel, those words has no independent meaning. It is merely a continuation of the preceding description of the mighty acts or great sights that Moses did before the eyes of all Israel. In other words, before the eyes of all Israel is an adjective. It's saying that all of these mighty acts that he did, receiving, uh, uh, doing all of these miracles in the desert to take care of the Jewish people, um, What's it called? Uh, uh, he did that in front of everyone. He did it publicly. Everyone saw it. For example, the water coming from the rock. He was told to do that in front of the entire congregation. So these were things that everyone saw. So it would seem that the literal meaning of the words, all of this that he did in front of the eyes of all Israel, that's just an adjective. It's describing the previous praise that we have for Moshe. These final words come after a long litany of Moshe's feats. He knew God face to face. He was able to converse with God whenever he desired. He performed amazing miracles in Egypt. He did mighty acts, a reference to receiving the tablets. He showed great sights, a reference to the miracles he did in the desert. His greatest feat, the one listed at the very end, cannot possibly be his choice to break the tablets. That would indicate that not only was it a positive thing, but moreover, it was far greater than any of the miracles he did during their 40 years in the desert. 
it would be even greater than the fact that he received those very tablets. Could breaking the tablets be greater than receiving them? That is unthinkable. So what's the deal? What is the deal with these with the breaking of the tablets? First of all, why is the breaking of the tablets a positive thing? True, God, uh, uh, God approved of it. Which, by the way, that itself, it might be a, a praise for Moshe. That Moshe did something without asking God beforehand. He did something which would seem to be contrary to God's will. And in the end, it turns out that it was God's will. Right? So that itself is, is, is a very special praise. But that's not what Rashi says was the praise. The praise is, call Yisrael, what he did in front of the people, which was breaking the tablets. How could breaking the tablets itself be the greatest praise that God can give to Moshe during his eulogy? That's the crux of the question. Okay. Uh, Larry asked an interesting question. Does shattering tablets that God wrote count as erasing God's name? That's an excellent question. When you break the tablets, you're kind of destroying the words that are engraved in there. That itself is a grave sin. So uh, there is an explanation to that. And I'll just give the, the very simple explanation is that when uh, Moshe saw the sin of the Jewish people, when, when the tablets saw the, the golden calf, the Talmud tells us that the words of the tablets, they, they flew away. So now the tablets basically didn't have the words anymore. So when he smashed them, he wasn't really smashing God's name. But that's a discussion for a different time. But no, he did not, he did not violate the, the prohibition of erasing God's name. Uh, do you happen to remember where in the Talmud God says, well done for shattering them? I'll have to look exactly for the source. But uh, trust me, it's there. All righty. So the Rebbe continues, and he brings to our attention um, an interesting defense that was uh, made for the Jewish people. We're going back to our parasha. Uh, let's go to source number three. After uh, Moses destroyed the tablets and he went back up for 40 days uh, to beg God for forgiveness, now God tells him that he should carve out two tablets. Let's see, source number three. God said to Moses, carve out two tablets for yourself, just like the first ones. I will write on those tablets the same words that were on the first tablets that you broke. Now Rashi has a very simple question. If God was able to produce the first tablets, why doesn't he just produce the second tablets? He ran out? There were no tablets in heaven? What's going on? So in order to answer that, Rashi uh, invokes a very, very interesting analogy. Um, I believe originally from the Medrash. And it goes like this. Let's leave the words of Rashi. Carve for yourself. You broke the first tablets, you carve out others for yourself. This is comparable to a king who went off to a faraway land and left his bride with the maidservants. The immoral behavior of the maidservants tarnished the betrothed's reputation. Her bridesman arose and tore up her marriage contract saying, if the king decides to kill her, I will tell him she is not yet your wife. You have no proof that you're married. The contract is gone. So even though you might blame her for, for being unfaithful, you have no proof that she had to be faithful to you. Smart man, right? The king's investigation found that only the maidservants had behaved immorally. He was reconciled with his bride. Okay, back to life, right? But no, you can't just go back to regular because now there's no marriage contract. It's gone. The bridesman said to the king, write her another marriage contract for the first one was torn up. 
The king replied to him, you are the one who tore it up. You buy another paper for yourself and I will write it for her in my hand. It's not that he's upset with the bridesman for tearing up the contract. On the contrary, he's very happy that the bridesman was very smart and he realized that uh, something not kosher is going on over here. And he believed that the bride was clean of all, of all problems, of all immorality. However, um, it would take time. And who knows, the king might be so angry, he might just uh, you know, uh, send her out or might have her executed before the investigation can play itself out. So therefore he tore the contract and the king was indebted to him for tearing the contract. He said, but you were the one that tore the first one. How about you bring the parchment and I will write out the contract for you. And so Rashi explains what the analogy is, how that compares to the story of the, of the golden calf. The king is God. So, so in general, if you go through the story in Exodus, and this week's Parsha, um, there, there, was, there was a whole group of people. Uh, there was a whole group of Egyptians and other nationalities that had joined the Jewish people as they left Egypt. Uh, they were not, you know, they, they basically, convert, they all converted to Judaism. They all joined the party. And Moshe, you know, invited them to come. Uh, but uh, as you say, they, 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 many of them had joined for the wrong reasons. It was a big problem. Many of them had joined for the wrong reasons. And they, they were a, a source for a lot of heartache, especially for Moses and for the rest of the Jewish people for a very long time. And um, it was specifically that group. They were called the Erev Rav, the group of the, the many multitudes that had joined the Jewish people. They were the ones that kind of uh, manipulated everyone's minds into thinking that, you know what, if Moses is gone, what we need now is some type of golden image that we're able to serve. Um, and it's very clearly there in the story that they were the ones that arranged for that all to happen. And they were the ones that convinced the Jewish people that this is now their deity. So what's the comparison here? The king is God. The maidservants are the mixed multitudes. The bridesman is Moses. God's betrothed is Israel. Therefore, it says, carve for yourself. Here's essentially what Rashi is telling us. And this is already giving us a bit of an understanding of why Moses broke the tablets. It wasn't because he was angry. Moses was not an angry man. Regular people, when they're angry, they take glass plates and they smash them, right? Why? Because they can't control themselves. Moses was the perfect human being. He wouldn't allow his anger to cause him to break anything, let alone tablets that he just received from God. But this is what happened. When God married the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, the second commandment is, you should, not, you should not have any other gods. You should not serve any other gods. It's basically a commitment of exclusivity. You're married to me and to no one else. And um, when Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees that the Jewish people are serving this golden image, which is basically a blatant violation of this uh, covenant of exclusivity, the Jewish people are in hot water, in deep hot water. And... Um, the punishment for this type of uh, treachery against God is annihilation. You violated the contract. What is the contract? What is the written contract? What's the written proof that there is some type of relationship between God and the Jewish people? The two tablets that Moses was holding in his hands. So what did Moses do? He got rid of it. He said, I'm going to get rid of this contract. Now that there's no contract, if, if God protests and says, hey, they're married to me and they violated that covenant. You know what Moses will say? Who says? Where's, where's the proof? The contract is gone. It's not here anymore. And God approved of that. He said, good job. You did a good job. 
until the investigation turned out that it really wasn't their fault, etc. I mean, they, they were still punished, but uh, they don't deserve annihilation. So therefore, you are going to craft out a new set of tablets. So let's see how the Rebbe takes this and kind of blends it all together. The answer lies in Rashi's earlier comments. So again, our question here is, how could breaking the tablets be considered the greatest heroic act that Moshe did in his lifetime, even greater than receiving the two tablets? The answer lies in Rashi's earlier comments where he explains, I'm on page six, where he explains the reason for the breaking of the tablets. When God commands Moses to fashion two new tablets, Rashi states, this is comparable to a king who went off to a faraway land and left his bride with the maidservants. The more behavioral of the maidservants tarnished the betrothed's reputation. Her bridesmen arose and tore up her contract, saying, if the, God, if the king decides to kill her, I will tell him she is not yet your wife. The king is God. The maidservants are the mixed multitudes. The bridesman is Moses. And God's betrothed is Israel. This explanation can help us understand how Moses could be praised for taking the initiative to break the tablets. To preface, Rashi's parable does not seem to explain why Moses took the liberty to break the tablets. These tablets are a microcosm of the entire Torah. They were God's personal handiwork, as opposed to the second tablets which were fashioned by Moses before being engraved by God. These tablets were fashioned by God himself. Now Moses' entire identity was the Torah. Now, make no mistake, on the tablets there were only Ten Commandments. But those Ten Commandments are comprised of 620 letters, each letter referring to a different mitzvah in the Torah. So the tablets were not the whole Torah, but they were a microcosm of the Torah. In other words, all of the Torah that would ever be learned, taught, discovered for millennia was all packed, densely packed, into these two tablets. These two tablets were the entire Torah. They were all there. It was all there. Now, Moshe's entire identity was Torah. That's what he wanted. Moshe is, the, the only thing that Moshe is known for is the fact that he gave us the Torah. He's known as Moshe Rabbeinu. Rabbeinu does not mean our savior, the one who took us out of Egypt. Rabbeinu does not mean the one who took care of us in the desert for 40 years. Rabbeinu means he was our teacher. And what did he teach us? Torah. So Moshe is all about Torah. He no doubt had a perfect understanding of Torah. So he was surely able to appreciate the sublime nature of the Torah, especially those first tablets fashioned by God himself. So the question must be asked. True, it is important to defend the Jewish people. But nonetheless, how could Moses destroy the tablets that were fashioned and given to him by God himself? The answer is that the people of Israel always come first even above Torah. The entire purpose of the Torah, beginning with the first set of tablets, was for the sake of the people of Israel. As we read throughout the Torah, command the people of Israel, speak to the people of Israel, it is all about the Jewish people. Therefore, the moment their reputation was tarnished and they were in harm's way, God forbid, Moses didn't hesitate. He didn't consult with anyone, not even with God, and he shattered the tablets, tablets that had been fashioned by God himself. The ultimate purpose of the Torah is to uncover the essence of the Jewish people. So in the event that the result might be the opposite, God forbid, 
and you are forced to choose between Torah and the Jewish people, there is no place for hesitation. Moses immediately proceeded to break the tablets, the Torah, for the sake of the Jewish people. Mind you, as the Rebbe was saying these words, this is where the, where the Rebbe just broke down and was sobbing, uncontrollably. Moreover, the breaking of the tablets was worthwhile even to save just a small portion of the people of Israel. The most immoral among them, those who transgressed with the golden calf. The Torah says that only 3,000 Jews served the idol. There were 600,000 men. What's 3,000 and 600,000? Not even 1%. Not even 1% of the people. And take on top of the 600,000, you have at least 600,000 women who none of them served the idol. And above that, you have the men that were above the age of 60 and under the age of 20, and all the children. So you're talking about in a crowd of, let's say, 3 million people, only 3,000 served the idol. This is a minute, minute, small little bit of the people. Anytime a leader would have to make a decision, should I get rid of 3,000 in order to protect 3 million? Hey, get rid of the 3,000, who cares? And especially with the price of protecting those 3,000, is to break the two tablets that he just received from God Almighty? You can't go buy them in the store again. This, this is, I mean, he didn't even ask God for permission. Here he goes and destroys the tablets. For who? To protect whom? 3,000 Jews who had succumbed to bowing down to an idol 40 days after witnessing Sinai, the revelation at Sinai. Let's read in the Rebbe's words. The idea that someone's good name could be tarnished is only relevant among human beings who make mistakes, right? When you talk about, there's a problem. There's a difference between that. There's a profound difference between the analogy and uh, what we're trying to compare it to. In the analogy, you have a king who, who hears that there was, you know, some, some, uh, some bad stuff going on back at home. So it's possible for the king to be under the impression that his bride, that his wife, behaved immorally. Why? Because he doesn't know everything. So it's possible for him to get confused between the maidservants and the wife, etc. And you need a whole investigation to find out. Does that apply to God? No, God knows exactly who sinned. So Moses knows that what's really hanging in the balance? The small rabble of riffraff that had, that had uh, you know, served the golden calf. And as long as these two tablets are intact, these 3,000, they're really the ones that are in trouble. What does he do? God knew all along that the real debauchery was only among the maidservants, the mixed multitude, as he told Moses clearly when he instructed him to go down to the mountain and deal with the issue. Moses, too, the true shepherd of Israel, knew that the people of Israel were incapable of fashioning a golden calf. The minority who did reach that state did so only under the influence of the maidservants, the mixed multitudes. Thus, the incident posed no danger to the entire people of Israel, God forbid, but only to a small minority who sinned with the golden calf. Nonetheless, to defend the small minority who sinned and to ensure that they will be welcomed back into the fold, Moses didn't hesitate to break the tablets. Let's continue on page 8. So the breaking of the tablets demonstrates a great virtue in Moses and in fact his greatest virtue of all. After Torah lists the amazing feats of Moses speaking to God face to face, performing the miracles in Egypt, receiving the Torah, and more miracles throughout their sojourn in the desert, the Torah concludes with the greatest virtue of all. 
For the sake of the Jewish people, he didn't hesitate to break the tablets. A greater virtue than all the amazing feats he accomplished, including the fact that he received the very same Torah. The greatest achievement of Moses, the faithful shepherd of Israel, was that he jeopardized his entire identity, the Torah, to defend a small portion of his flock, the people of Israel, who had fallen into sin. The Torah is Moshe's essence, yet he didn't hesitate to break the precious tablets which were fashioned by God himself to defend those who had transgressed with the golden calf. This is the true virtue of a Jewish leader. He recognizes the essential value in his people which supersedes the Torah and is therefore ready to break the tablets for their sake. So this is just one point that the Rebbe makes, and this is just a very powerful and very profound idea that when presented with the question, what comes first, the pristine, holy, divine Torah, or the Jewish people, and what type of people, people who had gone and served the golden calf barely 40 days after seeing God himself at Sinai, the choice is clear. And Moshe did not have to um, consult with God he didn't consult with anyone. It was instinctive in Moses. When you have a question between Torah and the Jewish people, the Jewish people come first, even above the Torah. And God recognized that. And God put that in, in Moshe's eulogy and the climax of his eulogy. But now the Rebbe is going to go and say something very amazing. There's another reason why this is the climax of his eulogy. Everything else that he accomplished was because he was provided with superior powers. This was something that he did completely on his own. So before we get to the next paragraph, let's go to source five on page nine. Uh, this is a quote from, uh, from a talk from the previous Rebbe, um, which speaks about the idea of the humility of Moses. The Torah tells us, this takes us to a whole different story uh, when one time his sister and brother, Miriam and Aaron, uh, they spoke about Moses. Um, they didn't mean any harm, but, uh, but God was very upset with the way they spoke about him. And uh, the Torah tells us that Moses himself didn't care. Moses was not insulted by what, they, by what they had said, but God defended him. And so the Torah says at that point that, that Moses was the most humble man ever to live. The, the actual words are, the Torah says, on, on source five, the Torah says Moses was more humble than any other person on the face of the earth. Despite the fact that he was aware of his lofty stature, I mean, how could, how could Moses be humble? Moses was, was, was a real superstar. I mean, this is the guy that, uh, you know, faced Pharaoh. He was the one that split the sea. He was the one that whenever there was trouble in the desert, they were running to Moses. How could he be humble? Besides that, he was the ultimate teacher of the Jewish people. He knew exactly what he was. You know what his position was. So how could he be so humble? Despite the fact that he was aware of his lofty stature, he was still more humble than anyone else because he knew that all of his talents and powers were given to him by God. The Torah tells us that when Moses was born, his mother saw that he was good. The Medrash explains that the entire home was filled with the light upon his birth. That is a blessing from God, not a natural achievement. So how could you blame anyone else for not being Moses? Okay. How could you give credit to Moses for being Moses? He was born Moses. 
Moses assumed that had someone else been granted those same powers, he would have achieved the same status, and he may have even developed those powers further, reaching even greater heights. See, even when you're given a talent, you still have to develop that talent. You still have to use out the talents, right? There are many people that have many talents, and they're just dormant. They're just dormant. So Moses definitely developed his talents, and he used them out. But Moses thought to himself that if Shmerel, Yankel, the guy off the street, that low-life Jew that's running around and he's stealing from people, let's say, if he was provided with my talents, he would probably do better than me. So Moses was even able to be humble in the face of a low life because he thought to himself, yeah, you know why he's a low life? He wasn't given a chance. But if he would have been given a chance, the chances that I was given, he would have done even better. And by the way, the Rebbe says in a different talk that that wasn't true. That was not true. Moses used out and developed his talents to the extent possible. Even if all of his talents were given to someone else, no one would be able to do better than Moses. No one. And yet, Moses was so humble that he was able to convince himself that if his gifts and talents were given to someone else, they would have done better than him. So now, here we have a little bit of a window into the character of Moses. That what? That everything that he did, he understood, right? He understood immediately that the fact that he was able to do all these miracles, the fact that he was able to receive the two tablets, the fact that he was able to split the sea, all of that, was a gift from God, right? Now, he had to develop his talents and he had to use them out to the furthest extent and therefore he could get credit for all of those things. But, to a certain extent, there's a limit to what credit can be associated to Moses for all of those achievements, besides for one. And that is breaking the tablets. To break the tablets, you didn't need a talent. It wasn't a gift. It was a deep-seated love for the Jewish people, which was not gifted to him by God. It was something that he developed on his own. Let's go back to the Sif on page 8, the last paragraph. This virtue is greater than all the others. All the other feats were accomplished with talents that were given to him by God. As the Alter Rebbe explained, Moses humbly felt that if God would have given those talents to someone else, he would have executed the task more ably. But the decision to break the tablets didn't come from a God-given power. It was his own idea, and God approved of it. Breaking the tablets to defend the people of Israel is the greatest expression of Moshe's love for his fellow Jews. Moshe was a lover of Israel, the Talmud says. He didn't hesitate and immediately shattered the tablets to protect his people. And here comes the final point. What are the words in the eulogy that hint to this idea that he broke the tablets? The words, Le'enei kol Yisrael, that he did it in front of everyone. He did it in front of everyone. What's the idea here? Moses did this act before the eyes of all Israel. They all witnessed how he broke it to teach us the importance of loving our fellow. He endeavored to implant within us a true sense of Ahavat Yisrael. So when the Jewish people saw Moses all of a sudden appear, they thought he was dead. He all of a sudden appeared. And he's holding the tablets. And now they're basically, they're, they're caught red-handed. You can imagine the shame, the terrible shame that they had being caught red-handed by their beloved leader, serving an idol less than 40, 40 days after, after Sinai. 
And yet, what do they see him do? They see him take the tablets and smash them. And they immediately understood what he was doing with smashing them. They knew Moses wasn't an angry man. They knew that he was fully in control of what he was doing and that this was a conscious decision. And what was the decision? Here's what he was telling them. You guys, you lowlifes, you, come on. This is what you're doing because you thought I came late. You guys can't stoop even more. But you know what? I love you guys a lot. And I know that these tablets are going to be bad for you. I know that these tablets are going to make my defense of you much harder. You know what? Let's get rid of these. I'm on your side, guys. You guys are, you deserve a patch, right? You guys are bad boys and you're going you're gonna to get it. But I'm on your side. And learn from me to be on each other's side. Learn from me what true Ahavat Yisrael means. It's not about seeking out to make sure that everyone is doing exactly what that. No. You see a fellow Jew, love them, embrace them, and ensure that they are part of the fold. Of course, they're going to need a little washing down. They'll need a little help. You know, they, they didn't go scot-free. Moses screamed at them. Ooh, there, there was drama over there. It wasn't, he didn't come and say, oh, guys, I missed you. No, no, no. He got very upset at them. And they were very ashamed. And, there, and, and it didn't go down very easy. There was, there was some pretty tough moments there. But the initial message was that Moshe was telling them, the standard here is that when we have a choice between Torah and a fellow Jew, our fellow Jew comes first. Not that we can go and violate the Torah. He did not violate anything. He illustrated to them that the Jewish people must be defended to the limit. And even more than that. And he is even willing to smash the tablets in order to ensure that the Jewish people are defended. And, and uh, when the Rebbe, so, so in just in general, understanding the context in which the Rebbe delivered this talk, and communicated it, uh, there are many layers to how to understand this. On a very basic level, I mean, you could, you could call this you know, a nod to what was going on then, that there were so many had, who had chosen to go far away in order to, um, to, to bring joy to fellow Jews in some Torah, even though they were missing a historic moment to hear the Rebbe speak, etc. That's one level of the sacrifice. But I think it's even deeper than that, that the Rebbe was expressing what the essence of a Jewish leader really is. And that is, to constantly defend and to love the Jewish people. You don't have to defend their actions. And Moses did not defend their actions, not at all. He took them to task. You never defend the bad actions, but you never condemn the person behind the actions. The person behind the actions needs to be loved and embraced and try to help out, try to find ways how to teach, how to educate, how to share, but never condemn the people because of their actions because the entire purpose of the Torah is for the Jewish people.